0: Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1 this morning. Isaiah chapter number 1. Man, it's so good to be here today. And uh, I'm glad I was able to make it here through all the snow that they forecasted. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> able to get here today. What a blessing that that is. And I was talking to somebody earlier. We were talking about the weather. And I said, well, you know, we might be in flip-flops by the end of the day. Amen. It's Tennessee. Uh, it's hard to know. But I'm glad that you came out this morning. Isaiah chapter number 1. This book of the Bible has been heavy on my heart and uh, and I, I want to preach to you out of this first chapter, something that the Lord spoke to my, actually weeks ago spoke to my heart about out of this and I haven't had freedom, liberty to preach it until this morning. Isaiah chapter number one, I'd like to begin reading in verse number one. Isaiah chapter one, verse number one, so you're not wondering, we're going to read down to verse 20, amen. If that's too much, you can just go now, amen, but <laughs> we'll begin in verse number one. The Bible says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know. My people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even under the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They've not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devoured in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Now, the prophet begins to speak to Israel once more, but he doesn't address them as Israel. Rather, he says this, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat of the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the Spirit of God and the house of God and the people of God. Lord, we have everything we need right here for you to do an eternal work. Now, pray it not be lost on us what these next few moments mean. But may we open our hearts to the truth of your word. and May we be willing, submissive, obedient unto the truth that is preached to us. Lord, I pray if there's one that's lost amongst us, that you would show them that need. Lord, I, I, that, that you'd make known to them that they have no hope and no help outside of Christ. And I pray they'd make the choice to come to your son Jesus Christ, believe on him by grace through faith and be born again into the family of God. Lord, I love you. And I don't know why you love me, but I'm so thankful that you do. So help us to be well-pleasing in your sight today. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The prophet Isaiah prophesied during the reign of several kings of Judah. He was one of the longest reigning prophets over the land of Israel. Some 60 years it is at least uh, speculated at that he ministered during the reigns of these kings. This was a time in Israel's history of uh, relative prosperity and of peace. And one of the problems people had with the prophecy of Isaiah is it blended both rebukes of the current conditions of the day uh, with what would be the results of their disobedience towards the Lord. And so often Isaiah would, would speak and invoke these concepts of doom, of gloom, of impending judgment. But if you were living in Isaiah's day, man, it looked like everything was going swimmingly. It looked like the kingdom was fine. It looked like the 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 coffers were full. It it looked like the temple was functioning. And underneath all of it, there was a corruption that had begun to take root in the moral fiber of Israel as a people, in the spiritual life of the son of uh, of Abraham, of Jacob's people. And so when you read through the prophet Isaiah... You'll find that the people did not receive his truth very, very well. But Isaiah meant no words and he pulled no punches. And when we come to this opening chapter of the book of Isaiah, we find it to be a scathing indictment of the moral decline of Israel as a people. Notice with me the sad state of Israel this time, spiritually speaking. The Bible says this at the end of verse number 2. The Lord speaking to Israel says, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Notice number Number one, this morning they were ungrateful in the way they lived. Can I say this? Ingratitude is the gateway to much deeper, more nefarious sins. There's a lot of stuff that we'd never do if we was as grateful to God as we ought to be. If we knowed what we owed and what He has paid, if we knew what He had done for us, if we had rightly situated at the forefront of our mind just how lost we were and just how saved we are, it'd keep us from a world of trouble. But they were ungrateful in their behavior. Notice not only they were ungrateful, but verse 4 tells us they were sinful. He in fact says this, A sinful nations. what He calls them. He doesn't call them the apple of His eye. He doesn't call them His chosen royal treasure. He calls them a sinful nation. They were still His people. They were still the apple of His eye. But I'm glad God loves us enough to tell the truth, don't you? He says, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. He calls them a seed of evildoers. Hey, they weren't the symptom, they were the seed. They weren't the product, they were, the, uh, they, they were the, the cause of it. They weren't the consequence. Uh, they were the source of it, and, and they were the cause of it. He says, children that are corruptors. And then he says this, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Not only were they ungrateful, but they were sinful. Verse number 5, he says this, why should ye be stricken anymore? In other words, why should I keep whipping you? Why should I keep chastening you? You may have never said this uh, as a parent, but there have been times in parenting my children that I've just looked at my child and I've said, what's the point in disciplining you if you're not going to learn your lesson? And he went, I won. Amen? (laughs) God looks at Israel and he says, what's the purpose? Why should ye be stricken anymore? He says, ye will revolt more and more. He says, the whole head is sick whole heart is faint from the sole of the foot, even under the head. There is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. And he says, I've tried to help you. I've tried to minister to you. I've tried to heal you. But he says they have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Let me say this. They were not only ungrateful and sinful, but they were willful. They refused to allow God to break their spirit. We have this thing in culture and society today of the resiliency of self. And I will say this, in, in, in the context of a tyrannical government, I believe in self-determination, independence, autonomy, rugged individualism. But let me tell you something, that's because the government ain't got the right to the things that God has a right to. And let me tell you something, you don't have a right to rugged individualism with God. You don't have a right to self-dependence with God. Uh, you don't have a right to willfulness with God. You ought to let God break your spirit. Y'all let God break your will. His will's never gonna be done while your will is in force. Y'all let, but they refuse to let him break him. They allowed in their willfulness, their stubbornness, their pride to refuse to allow God to heal them. They were willful. And then he says this in verse 7, Leaping forward beyond the present day, he views a destruction that would one day come upon the people. And he says this, Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devoured in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. Now here's the problem Israel had. That ain't what the land looked like. Not in the days of Isaiah. This is early in his prophecy. And in fact, if you read and study uh, the history of Israel, in the days of Uzziah were some of the most glorious times in Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah's history. And it didn't look like that. But here's what Isaiah does. Hey, he doesn't just look at the present because this is God speaking. uh, Not just Isaiah. He looks at the end of the matter. And sees that there would in fact come a day when a Babylonian emperor by the name of Nebuchadnezzar would come, uh, would overthrow the walls of Jerusalem, would lay low that holy and chosen city, and would carry away captive all of her inhabitants. And so Isaiah, looking beyond the present, he looks to the result, and he says this, that they were not only ungrateful, sinful, willful, but they were woeful. You go a little further in the book of Isaiah, and you'll find that Isaiah begins to ring this bell of woe. In the ears of the nation of Israel. And he talks about all the woes that God is pronouncing. You know what a woe is? It's a warning. Right? That's the reason when you're driving and somebody pulls out in front of you, your wife goes, Whoa! I just started about 18 fights in this room right just then. Saw husbands go. I told you he heard you. <laughs> Woeful. And here's what he's saying. I could use this term, painful. Sin's painful. The way of the transgressor is hard. The world wants you to think it's easy, and it's because in that moment it's easy to yield to. But oh, my friend, at the end it stings like an adder. At the end it kills like a poison. And he looks forward to their future day and he sees the city in flames and he says, you don't understand it, but this iniquity, this sinfulness that you're engaging in, it's going to destroy you one day. I could in many ways sum up the responsibilities of a pastor to stand like the prophet Isaiah and just look at folks and say, you understand your sin, my sin, it's going to destroy us one day. If we allow it, if we don't rip it up, root and stem, it's going to destroy your marriage, it's going to destroy your kids, it's going to destroy your joy, it's going to destroy your testimony. It cannot be neglected. It cannot be overlooked. I see they were woeful. And then verse 9, a shocking statement that the Word of God makes. It says this, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom and we should have been like Unto Gomorrah. Now I want you to notice this. He says this. Had it not been for the mercy of God, they would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah in their destruction. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah stand as a testimony to the cleansing ability of the judgment of God. When God was done with those cities of the plain other than the city of Zoar, which He spared, when He was done with those other four cities, there was nothing left of them. He literally turned that valley to salt and ash. And nothing was left. And here's what it says. Had it not been for God, uh, His mercy and His grace, we would have been wiped out a long time ago. I made the comment this morning in our Sunday school class, and actually it was when I was praying, but God, the thought just struck my mind, no telling how many people whose lives were ruined this morning when some tragedy befell their family. You could go down to UT Hospital and walk uh, into the trauma center and sit in the emergency room and find family after family after family whose day started as good as yours and now is in pieces. And you and I sit here whole today by the grace and mercy of God. Then notice this, they were unlike Sodom in its destruction, but they were exactly like Sodom in their depravity. Notice what he says then, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. In other words, they would say, well, thank God at least we're not like Sodom and Gomorrah. And God said the only difference between Sodom and Gomorrah is I ain't wipe you out because I'm merciful to you. Hey, listen, go back and look through the, the annals of history at the various pagan empires that have graced this earth, that have lived, that have risen and have crumbled. And ask yourself, why is America here? Right. We think it's because we're a godly nation. I'm going to be honest with you, we're not a very godly nation. I'm going to be a million percent frank with you. We We allow things in our country that are not allowed anywhere else in the known world. You can go across the world, and a lot of stuff that has been normalized and mainstreamed in this country is outlawed and forbidden in other places. Now, l- listen, and let me tell you something: if, if you think, if you think uh, that that, mm, if you think the freedom to act and live in debauchery and depravity is some sort of noble democratic virtue, you've got it wrong. You're the reason our country is crumbling. Hey, listen, I I don't celebrate the the liberty of those that are deranged and degenerate to live in their iniquity and unrighteousness. I saw a news article the other day where, you know, occasionally, I mean, listen, even a blind pig occasionally finds an acorn. And and I saw the other day where they're getting ready to uh, pass a bill that will outlaw. Really, all it's outlawing is public indecency. But these transvestite shows are indecent. And they know that they are, right? They're grooming children. That's what they're doing. They know that. That's why they target children is they're grooming children. Cause see, they can't, they can't, <laughs> their, their movement doesn't propagate on its own. They have to go out and warp young, young people's minds. And I saw a news article that was just, oh, oh, it was all tore up because it said if this law passes, then they won't be able to have the pride parade anymore. Thank God. Amen maybe god 'll spare Knoxville. I mean, listen, I, and you say, well that 's their freedom, no, it 's not their freedom. Indecency, debauchery, debauchery, degeneracy that 's not freedom, that 's not liberty, that 's iniquity. and we shouldn 't run cover for it under some kind of uh, of, 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 of naive, ill-conceived notion of uh, of, of liberty that 's nonsense. At what point? Listen, hey, I I I had a message. Where did it go? Hey, let me tell you something. I I believe I believe in free market capitalism. My God is not free market capitalism. I believe in individual liberty. I believe in that. I believe it is I believe it is vested in the authority of God and bestowed upon every human being. But I want you to listen. My God is not democracy, nor democratic republicanism. My God is the God of the Bible and His authority and His law is the Bible. You say, preacher, you're trying to institute a theocracy. Hey, listen, if we could just get the lunatics to quit running the asylum, I'd be satisfied. And what I'm trying to get you to understand, hey, listen, there ain't a lot of difference between America and Sodom and Gomorrah. And I thank God for what godly history America has had. And if I have any grief in my heart over our country... It's sure not because of what she was. It's because of what she's become. And he looks at Israel and he says, you're just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And here's what's interesting to me. I don't want to preach on any of that. I want you to see the most remarkable thing of it all. Look at verse 11. The Bible says this, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? In spite of all Israel's wickedness, they were still worshipping. They're still going to church. I mean, God looks at them and says, you are exactly like Sodom and Gomorrah. But they would have said, but at least we're still going to church. And in disgust at their wickedness, God turns the table. And this is what struck my heart. You know what he does? He begins to lodge many of the complaints that we hear folks make today when they quit church. Notice verse 11. Here's what he says. To what purpose is the multitude? People say, what's the point in going to church anymore? I've heard people say things like this. Well, preacher, I've just had too much church. I've just been to church too much in my life. God says in verse 11, I'm full of the burnt offerings of rams. I've heard people use this excuse. They'll say, well, why should I go when nobody else wants to go? God says, when you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand? Who's twisting your arm? Who's making you go, he says. uh, You probably heard this before. I ain't going down to church. Bunch of hypocrites down there, said the hypocrite. (laughs) Said the hypocrite. i ain't going to go down to church. Bunch of messed up people down there. You ought to fit in then. You ought to fit in then. Me too. Bunch of hypocrites down there. God says this. Bring no more vain oblations. You say, what's an oblation? It's an offering. He says, don't bring none of that empty worship anymore. And then I've heard people say this. It's just too much. It's just, I ain't got time. I've got too much going on. It's just too much. I cannot handle it. It's too much of a burden. You know what the Lord says? He says, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. So you know what God does? Look down with me at verse number 13. He says this, the calling of assemblies. I understand we're in the Old Testament. It's talking about worship at the temple and it's talking about feast days. But the New Testament equivalent would be public worship in the house of God. He says the calling of assemblies. This is a good King James Bible phrase. I cannot away with it. In other words, he says, I don't even know what to do with it anymore. I cannot even bear to deal with it Anymore. He said, is it, it is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Yeah. So you know what he says, verse 15? He says, when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. In other words, when we come to this passage, we see what happens when God quits church. Yeah. Uh, Can I tell you a lot of the problem with churches in this country? is God quit going to them right. and they keep having church. Yeah. Now, you know what you ought to do if God decides he don't want to show up to your church anymore, you ought to stop yeah. right where you're at. Don't move a muscle yeah. and figure out why right. and fix that problem. Yeah. I, listen, I, I want to tell you, I love you. I do. I love you. I love seeing your beautiful faces. I really do. But if God's not willing to go to church here, I don't want to either. I think this is the greatest church in the world. Amen. I'd fight you over it. What's the old saying? Every crow thinks their crow's the blackest. Right. I, I think this church is the greatest. But if God won't go to church here, I'm sorry. I don't want to go to church right. here either. Right. And so here's what we need to understand. And here's what I want to preach to you about this morning. Not about whether you go to church. You're here today. I ain't here to fuss at you on a rainy, sunny morning about you ought to come to church more. You're here this morning. Text those people that didn't show up. Get on them. Right, right preacher? I want to preach to you about how you come to church. And I would say this, that how we're willing to worship God in the house of God can directly affect God's willingness to bless and favor our lives and the work of God in this place. When I come to this passage of Scripture, I notice three thoughts, four thoughts. How many do I have? 26 thoughts that jump out to me. And I want you to notice them with me. It begins in verse number 11. And God really gets down to the meat of what is the problem in the nation of Israel. He says this, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? He says, I'm full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Notice number one with me this morning, the rebuke of the worshipers. You know, God's not happy with just every form and sort of worship. It's funny, in the church today, there's this notion that we ought to be focus group driven, that we ought to be product testing and and, and that our notion and attitude and disposition about church is whatever the people want, that's what we ought to give them. Read, pick a page, any page in your Bible and read it and find out if what's best for man is what man wants for himself. What you'll find, in fact, is that most of the time it is directly, it is literally the opposite that is true, that man always desires and craves that which is worse for him. Uh, Not to mention the fact that this attitude about worship is wrong-headed in the first place. You see, it's not God worshipping us, it's us worshipping Him. And much of Christianity in America today is really centered around the concept of trying to get God to worship man instead of man to worship God. It's an exercise in arriving at the house of God to have the servant of God, the man of God, take the word of God to tell you how great you are. That's not you worshiping God. That's God worshiping you. And so when we come to this passage of Scripture, He begins by rebuking all the things that are wrong. There's some worship God don't want. There's some worship God's not interested in. And we see that their form of worship he was not interested in. Notice the three problems with it. Number one was that their worship was a formality. He asked a very interesting question. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? Why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? What's the point? You know, the problem is they didn't have a good answer for that. They weren't coming to the temple to worship. They weren't giving sacrifices because they really believed that they needed to have their sins atoned for it. Not because they really believed that they needed to be reconciled unto a holy and righteous God that they had trespassed against. They were doing it because their daddies had done it and their daddies before them, and that had just simply always been the case. Can I use a phrase? You've heard me use it a lot before that sums this up. Cultural Christianity. I do what I do because that's just what I do. Most people do what they do because that's just what they do. If you ask them why do you do that, they just stare at you as though it's an absurd notion that you would ever expect a reason for anything. Why'd you come to church today? Because it's Sunday. That's that's a bad reason. No wonder you don't come on Wednesday. Why'd you come to church today? To see everybody. Hey, listen, you got Facebook, don't you? You know a lot. It makes you question things when churches are like, "Ah, oh, we can just do this on Facebook. Right, right? Yeah. Maybe you can. If what you're doing can be done through a computer screen, it probably wasn't worth doing in the first place. Right. Yeah. I, forsake not the assembling of yourselves Amen. together, as yeah. the manner of some is. Yeah. Hey, listen, how are we going to provoke one another unto love and unto good works and so much the more as you see the day appearing if we're not together? Yeah. And so I, I, I'm just telling you, hey, listen... I, what's the purpose? Why'd you come today? Did you come to see the people? Did you come because you was bored? That used to be, that's part of the reason our country looked righteous at a time when it was rotting underneath is people were just bored and all there was to do was church. You go back like a hundred years ago, that's, that's how a lot of it was in this country. They didn't go to church because they loved God. They went to church because they were tired of sitting there and, and, and just watching the coal oil burn out of the lamp. <laughs> and that was all there was to do. Can I tell you this? There's only one sincere, genuine, real reason to come to the house of God and that's to meet with the Lord. God established the mercy seat within the tabernacle as being His throne upon earth. His place wherewith He could meet with mankind. And He reconfirmed that vision whenever the temple was built in Solomon's day. He says, this will be the place where I will meet with my people. Listen, I'm thankful. I understand we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. I understand it's not about these walls. I understand it's not about any of those things. But you're going to have to explain to me why if church don't matter, Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. And when you come to the house of God, it should not just be a social activity. When you come to the house of God, it should not merely be a formality, but it should be fellowship with an Almighty God. It should be, I came to hear what God has to say to me today. I came to find out what God wants to do in my life today. But their worship was a formality. Notice not only that, I like this. I don't know if I like it, but it's interesting. The end of verse 11, he says this, I'm full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. This is an interesting concept to me. You know, the book of Hebrews tells us that everything within the tabernacle and the temple was patterned after heavenly things. And so there was a heavenly mercy seat. There was a heavenly brazen altar. There was a heavenly sea of of glass. All these things, they were were pictures of heavenly things. A heavenly table of showbread. A a heavenly candlestick. All these things. And so here's what would happen, right? They would come and they would offer an animal upon the altar, the brazen altar. And they would kindle a fire underneath it. And that fire would consume that animal. But spiritually speaking, there was also an animal being placed on a brazen altar in heaven. Here's the problem. There was a fire lit down here, but God wasn't lighting that fire up there. Why didn't the animals stack up on the altar? Here's why. The fire consumed them. What did the fire consuming them denote? God's acceptance. So down here, they're putting carcass after carcass of animal upon this. There's a continual burnt offering every single day, 24 hours a day. They'd come, they'd give uh, trespass offerings and, and sin offerings and peace offerings and, and meat offerings and drink offerings and, and they'd give all of these different things and the fire would consume all of them. But meanwhile, God, seeing the iniquity in their hearts, refused to accept those sacrifices from them and they may have burned them up down here but God's saying, it's pollen up with dead carcasses and stinking up in heaven. In other words, he's saying I won't accept it, and that's why he says I'm full. I always think it's funny. I I, I I and I've told you this before. I saw a billboard back of this, and it said, "Stop childhood hunger." People just don't think. Stop childhood hunger. Start with mine. They're always hungry. Preacher, don't you feed them almost nonstop. And they're always hungry. Now, if you had said, you know, fight childhood starvation or malnutrition or something, maybe I'd get on board with that. As you see, I am a crusader against the notion of starvation. But they said childhood hunger. Here's the funny thing about it you ain't never gonna get rid of hunger. You know why? Because as the the, the as the meal is consumed, as as the space is made, you always get hungry again. God says, I'm full. Of the blood of burnt offerings. I'm full of the fat of fed beasts. Why? He wasn't accepting them anymore. Let me say it this way. Their worship was a formality. Number two, their worship was false. It was false. It wasn't done in sincerity. And God wasn't interested in it. Can I save you a lot of time? If you won't be sincere and do it out of a motive for the glory of God and the pleasure of Him, it is a waste of your time. God will not accept it. God does not traffic in the currency of your awesomeness. He's not interested in it. He wants sincerity. Hey listen, a broken and a contrite heart, the Lord, He will not refuse. And so the problem, the reason they were being refused is they weren't sincere in the first place. Notice verse 12, it says this, when you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread at my, or to tread my courts? In other words, let's say it this way. Their worship, it, 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 it was a formality, it was false, but number three, it was forced. He said, who made you come here? It's going to sound strange to say, but I'm going to tell you something. One of the reasons, one of the reasons ministries sometimes. hmm, How do I say this, Lord? The church is to be a volunteer entity. You've heard me say this. Nobody is made to come through those double doors. You're not here because you have to be. If you are, it ain't because I made you be here. And it ain't because anyone else made you be here. It's a volunteer entity. Now listen, with that, there comes great liberty and great responsibility. You have to recognize, it's up to me to keep my motives pure. It's up to me to keep my spirit right. No one's making me come. And nobody else is going to be held responsible for the spirit in which I worship. The attitude in which I worship, except me. And God looks at him and he says, I didn't make you come here. I didn't make you do this. You're here because you said you wanted to be here. But here's the problem. When your motives grow impure, there's all kinds of pressure points that can move and motivate your life. If their motives had been pure, then it would have kept their attitude about worship pure. But because their motives were impure and they were there as more a mere formality, they were there because culture demanded it, they were there because society thought better of it, they were there because their their history, their legacy, their heritage required it of them. It gave them room to develop a resentful spirit about what they did. They'd come into the house of God with a sour attitude, with a bad spirit, with a nasty look, and they had a bad attitude the whole time. Why? Because they was being forced. God looks at him and says, I didn't make you. I didn't force you. Let me tell you. Ooh. All right, we're getting ready to lose them all, Toby. Let's let's be ready, okay? Let's pull our socks up. We're getting ready to lose them all. You ready? Let's just go ahead and plunge in and let's just go ahead and say it. If you're not doing it for the Lord, don't do it. Amen. Oh, I understand. Hey, doing things for the Lord often means doing it against our flesh's will. I'm not saying if you ain't have fun, don't do it. I'm saying if you're not doing it for the Lord, don't do it. Don't do it. If you're not doing it for the Lord, why do it? What's the purpose of it? Mm, I see the rebuke of the worshipers. Notice number two, I see the rejection of the worshipers. I'm going to move through this quick, but look at verse 13. He says this, bring no more vain oblations. He says if that's how you're going to come to church, don't come to church. If that's how you're going to worship, don't worship. He says, I'm not making you. I'm not twisting your arm. I'm not forcing you. He says, bring no more vain oblations. He says, incense is an abomination unto me. By the way, the incense was a picture of their prayers. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Notice three things here. Number one, he would reject their sinful service. He says, if you're doing it with the wrong spirit and wrong attitude, I'm not interested in it. He says, just don't even do it. Just don't even do it. And, and I'm gonna be honest with you. I mean, there is. There's an anxiety in a pastor's heart because sometimes people misconstrue, misinterpret what you're saying. I'm not saying if it gets hard, quit. I'm not saying if it ain't fun, quit. (laughs) Most things in life are hard and not fun. Welcome to being an adult. You thought it was all gonna be staying up late and eating ice cream when you wanted. Me too. They lied to us. It's instead bills and responsibilities and hurting strange medical events that go unexplained. And, I, you know, so I'm not saying if it ain't fun, quit. Oftentimes it won't be fun. I'm not saying if it ain't easy, quit. Oftentimes it won't be easy. But I'm saying this, if you can't do it for Christ, then there's no point in doing it all. Well, preacher, then I ought to quit. No, 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 you missed it. You ought to get your attitude and your spirit and your focus right. Not quit. Hey, listen, God, God loathes a quitter. Don't quit. But instead, get right all the way through the Bible. Here is the the resounding message of the grace of God. Right is that He doesn't throw the clay away. Don't throw yourself away. Don't quit. Let the Lord help you to be able to do it in a right spirit. He rejects their sinful service. Notice number two. Look at verse fourteen with me. He says, "Your new moons and your worship, or your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. He says they are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. He would reject their wearisome worship. You ever been tired of church? I have. I'll go ahead and say it for you. You're too spiritual. I have. I've been to some of these revival meetings. Where it's an exercise in endurance. And they think it is super spiritual to have 87 preachers. And 83 of them, ain't got nothing to say. And... I, you know, I've been to these to these meetings where it's just this marathon thing and there's been times, my wife could tell you, she would too. There's been times I sit there and then my kids look at me. I have to... So that it looks like I'm not looking at my watch and it's wearisome. You know what God says? I ain't doing it anymore. That's what God says. He says, if you want to go down there and play the hypocrite, you help yourself. Doors are unlocked. But I won't be there anymore. What a tragedy. What a scandal. What a travesty that God would quit church. Oh, it can happen so easy. It, you don't understand how easy it can happen. And people, they condition themselves and they get used to going through the motions. Remember hearing a wise man say years ago, my greatest fear is that i would learn to live the Christian life without Christ. And people learn how to just go through the motions and fake it and pretend. I'm just telling you this. Hey, God's not asking you to do that. Instead, He'll help you have the right kind of worship. He would reject their wearisome worship. Verse 15, He says this, When you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes. I think, I think about this. I, and there's nothing wrong. Uh, Preacher Cravens, he preached about different forms of worship. And there's nothing wrong at all raising your hands. I like that. 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 Do you hear me? I said, I like that. And I, a lot of times when I'm worshiping, man, I'll, I'll raise my hand, two hands. If I had a third, I'd raise it. God, God deserves it. You know? Amen. But I think sometimes about some of these big outfits of, of, of uh, centers of neo pagan worship, Eastern mysticism, ain't a shred of it. Bible Christianity. It's all just the manufacturing of emotion and the manipulation of people's uh, of people's minds. And you'll look at them and you'll see them, and there'll be twenty thousand people in a stadium with their hands raised. They don't know what they're singing. They don't know what they're worshiping about. They don't know what any of that is. They're just repeating words, just like lemmings, just like zombies. And the world looks at that and says, boy, that's something. And God looks away from it. He says, I'm not interested in that. He says he says he would reject their polluted prayers. Yea, when you make many prayers, he says, I will not hear your hands full of blood. The traditional Hebrew way of prayer was to take the hands and have them outstretched. God looks down at an Israel that's engaging in an act of prayer and he looks at their hands and they're bloody. And he says, Until that's dealt with, I'm not going to meet with you. I see his rejection of the worshippers. Notice, notice the remedy for the worshipers. Verse sixteen he says this wash you. Go wash your hands. You ever looked at your kid? You ever just been sitting there and looked at your kids' hands? And they were just caked in mud? I hope it's mud. And you said, go wash your hands. God looks at his people with with the blood of their rebellion, their willfulness, their shamefulness. And he says, we'll do this, but first, go wash your hands. He says, wash you. He says, make you clean. Put away the evil doings from before mine eyes cease to do evil. What's the remedy for the worshipers? Number one, it's repentance. You've got to admit there's a problem. And you've got to resolve in your heart and mind that you're done with that. That's what repentance is, right? It's a change It's a change of the heart and mind that produces a change in the actions. Repentance is not the change in the actions. It's the change in the heart condition, the heart attitude. But it does, if it's sincere, produce a change in actions if, if a change in actions is necessary. And so theologians sit around looking real smart arguing about these things, but a newborn babe in Christ understands that. I mean, that, that's not a complicated thing about drawing that distinction. They just think, if it's wrong, I won't do it. All right, you ready for a master class in repentance? If you've been doing wrong, decide you ain't going to do it. Amen. Right. And if you want to if you wanna draw some distinction between the decision and the action and argue endlessly, that's fine. There's still people dying and going to hell that you ought to instead be spending your time trying to reach. Yeah. But repentance is a change of the heart and it will, if it's in sincerity, produce a change in the actions. And here's what he does. He says, make up your mind that things ain't okay. Oh my soul, the first step is just being willing to admit things are not okay. I'm not saying it's the last step, but I'm saying that's your first step. You ready? First step. This is it. We're all gonna, we're all gonna, first step. First step is to admit that there's something wrong in the first place. Preacher, there ain't nothing wrong. I'm worshiping God in the right way. God bless your soul. Pray for those of us that struggle. But the first step is to admit There's a problem. I see there's repentance. Number two, there's recommitment. He says this, learn to do well. (laughs) Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. So what's he saying there? He's saying learn to do different than what you're doing now. That's part of repentance as well, right? 180 degree turn. He has turned, but he didn't just turn away from something. He turned to something. Turn away from a wrong form of worship to a right form of worship. Recommitment. And then notice this. I like this. Look at this next verse. Verse 18. We always apply this to salvation. I think that's great. If you got born again from this verse, praise God. Nothing wrong with that. If you can win somebody to Christ using this verse to illustrate, praise God. You ought to do it. But he's talking about Israel here. He says in verse 18, come now. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. There's a lot going on here. Looks forward to the cross of Calvary, to the reconciling ministry of the Messiah for the nation of Israel, to the Lord. But can I just boil it down to a simple thought? Reconciliation. Realize what's wrong. Commit to get it right. Then go to the one that can do that. And let Him make it right in your life. He says, come now. Why do you have to say that? Because they weren't where he was. Let us reason together. Why do you have to say that? Because they were being unreasonable. So he says, come to where I'm at, and let's get this thing settled. God says, hey, you want it to be right? Come to where I'm at, and we'll get this settled. Oh, but praise God. He comes to me where I am. Yeah, I understand that. He did that when he saved you. But now the Bible says, draw an eye unto God, and he'll draw an eye unto you. And you can sit there waiting for Christianity to happen to you if you want. Or you can just come to God and let Him do what only He can do. Notice a final thought and then we're done with the introduction. Verse (laughs) 4. Verse 19. If you be willing and obedient, He says, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Notice the responsibility of the worshipers. And there's two things very simply talks about. The first is the path of the obedient. If ye be willing and obedient. It's not enough to be willing without being obedient. Not enough to be obedient without being willing. You have to be both willing and obedient. But if you are, here's what he says, "Ye shall eat of the good of the land. By the way, he's talking talking about the land of Canaan, right? The land of Israel, where they presently are. The good of the land. You know, it's interesting. uh, One of those things that some of those old songs do get wrong is they equate the idea of Canaan with heaven. Right? And, and you know, Canaan land is, is just inside. I love that song. But I tell you what I like a little better, I'm living in Canaan now. Yeah. Canaan was not a picture of heaven. It had problems, it had obstacles, it had enemies, it had giants. It had a whole lot of things that I hope Jesus has already whooped by the time I get to heaven. Amen. Canaan was a picture instead of the victorious life that God had for His people right if they would live in obedience. And so here's what he says. They've been living in the land for a long time and still hadn't eaten of the good of it. A lot of people been saved for a long time and still ain't eaten of the good of it. Miserable, suffering, sour, sorry, all the time. Hey, he says, listen, if you be both willing and obedient, you can eat of the good of that land. Some people, they enjoy their Christianity so much, it just makes me sick. Because I want to enjoy it as much as they do. And i tell you this. I, I, I Man, this is the truth of it. I don't want to suffer my way to glory. There's enough suffering in this world. Man uh, born of woman it is a few days and, and full of sorrow. I don't want to add to it by resenting my responsibilities as a Christian. Hey, the path, the obedient. And then he talks about the path, the obstinate. You don't have to, he says. You can go the other way. And here's what will happen. If you refuse. And rebel, we're rebels at heart. We are. It's what we are. That seems real noble, right? But let me tell you, so you ain't James Dean. Yeah, it's all right, Fred. One day I'll talk. To, I'll tell you about it later, okay? If you refuse, you know why you'd have to refuse? Because he's extending an invitation to you, saying you ain't got to live this way. I'll help you. I'll fix it. If you refuse and rebel not going to have his authority over me. We, we're all rebels at heart. we got a real problem, all of us do, with authority. All, it's, it's nascent to us. It's, it's in our flesh. We don't like authority. We resent it. We don't want it. We're rebels at heart. And so we have to make a deliberate, distinct, proactive decision to be both willing and obedient. He says, if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Time would fail me to talk about all of it. He's talking about the sword of man. But can I remind you that this is God's sword? Amen. Right. And if you refuse, hey, one of these days, this this book that we rejoice, that we joy in, is going to judge us. Yeah. Right. And we're going to have to give an account for how we've lived our lives. I'm just telling you this. You say, preacher, moral of the message, go home, quit. No, you missed it the moral of the message is come now, let us reason together. It's not go home and quit. It's come to Him and He can give you joy. I didn't say He's going to make it easy, but He'll give you joy. I didn't say He's going to make it problem-free, but He can give you joy. I ain't saying there ain't going to be times that you're going to have to work for that joy and work at that joy, but He can give you joy. And we can worship in a right way. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. I want you to come this morning. God spoke to your heart. I want you to meet the Lord.